Hey everyone, Lindsay Linton Buck here, the Project Director of Women in Wyoming. I'm so excited to share with you that I will be debuting the portraits and interviews that I've captured over the last couple of years, producing this series at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming this fall. The exhibit will debut October 25th, 2019 through August 2nd, 2020. If you're in the Cody, Wyoming area, please stop by. You'll have an opportunity to check out this work person and celebrate the achievements, power, and learned wisdom of Wyoming women today. I think of anthropology in the most basic sense to be about compassion and empathy. Understand what it might be like to live in someone else's shoes, to understand what their experiences are like through their eyes. And the more that we make an effort to listen to those stories and give credence to those stories, particularly if those experiences are really different from our own, and particularly if a belief system is really different from our own. If we make an effort to hear people out and learn about their realities, if we make an effort to empathize with their situations, it is harder to fear and hate them, and it's easier to feel compassion toward them. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming, where I talk with inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This is Chapter 3, Power. This time, fourth-generation Wyomingite and fourth-generation Japanese-American Ara Newland. An anthropologist, educator, and activist, Ara is passionate about educating her students, communities, and lawmakers around the country about the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. I learn about Ara's journey to become an anthropologist, how she intentionally honed her skills outside of Wyoming in order to come home, and how she's living her dream, teaching the next generation of students at Northwest Community College in Powell, Wyoming, 15 miles from Heart Mountain, where her relatives were incarcerated during World War II. Here's Ara. In college is when you sort of start thinking about your identity and wondering, you know, who am I and where do I come from? Where where exactly do I fit in the spectrum of things? And I remember distinctly feeling a little perplexed. So I'm ethnically, I'm half Japanese, but I don't feel all that connected culturally to Japan. I'd been to Japan, I studied Japanese, but it didn't feel all that natural to me. I also, since I'm half Japanese, I also didn't fully identify as a, a white American, I guess. And I remember having this epiphany sometime in college thinking, I'm a Wyomingite, and I'm a Japanese American from Wyoming. I had a very strong sense of place that connected me to Wyoming. And I remember just feeling elated at that time, like, yes, I'm a Japanese American woman from Wyoming. <laughs> um, and now that I'm back in Wyoming, I'm able to connect at a much deeper level with my Japanese American heritage specific to Wyoming. You are a fourth generation Wyomingite, fourth generation Wyoming woman, and a fourth generation Japanese American woman, which is pretty rare combo. So how did your family first come to Wyoming from Japan? So most of the uh, Japanese immigrants who came to the United States from Japan ended up on the West Coast. But my relatives came straight from Japan to Wyoming in the early 1900s. On one side of the family, they were coal miners. 
I had a great-grandfather who worked as a laundryman in Yellowstone National Park for a summer. He pitched a tent and um, set up his own little laundry business in the park. He later set up his laundry business in Green River, Wyoming. On the other side of the family, my great-grandfather worked for the railroad. He was a section foreman, and so they moved all along the southern part of the state and northern Utah. My grandma used to say we kids were born all up and down the railroad between Ogden, Utah and Cheyenne, Wyoming. And your family has stayed for generations. What about Wyoming has pulled you back and made you want to establish your career here in Wyoming? Well, I knew that I wanted to be in Wyoming. I was born and raised here. I got my undergraduate degree at University of Wyoming. I worked in Laramie for a few years after graduating. And when I decided to go to graduate school, I applied to schools outside of the state, knowing that what I want to do is go out and get the best education I can so that I can be as competitive as possible to come back and get a job in Wyoming. So that's what I did. I got my master's degree in medical anthropology, and I was working on my doctorate, quite a ways into my doctorate, actually. I'd been up in this area and I said, well, I remember that they have a a nice college and a nice community in Powell. I'm just going to look and see if they have an anthropology program. And so I went to their website and they had posted my job like three days before that. The posting would be open for 30 days. And I knew that after that, it wouldn't come available again for like 30 years because people who come here tend to love it here. I dropped everything else I was doing and I applied for this job and landed my dream job back here in Wyoming, uh, teaching anthropology at the community college. What was your draw to hone in on anthropology in particular as your main field of study and now your main body of work that you teach and connects back to Heart Mountain as well? I find anthropology appealing for its cross-cultural perspectives. Growing up, my parents had always had our family engaged in international volunteer work and international travel. From the time I was 13 to the time I was 26, I spent about a week or two every year uh, doing volunteer medical work in Honduras, serving with teams of doctors and dentists in Honduras. That was something that my parents introduced to us, and I just got hooked. I also spent a couple of summers in Japan and had studied Spanish, and so I um, was traveling a lot, and international travel was a big part of who I was, and I found great value in making friends with people from different backgrounds um, and learning different languages, and so that was the initial draw in anthropology for me. As I got further into it, I just really appreciated the the way that anthropology keeps you on your toes in terms of questioning whether something is actually normal and natural or if that's just seeming normal and natural because that's the way you were raised and that's how you always assumed things were. Anthropology turns everything on its head and I find that to be fun. It's unsettling for a lot of people, but I find that to be fun. You're particularly drawn to teaching at community colleges, which are you know smaller, more local schools. Why is that? Why were you so drawn to wanting to teach this demographic of students over somewhere else? Well, anthropology had always come naturally to me because I had traveled a lot and I had experienced more cultural diversity. 
than maybe your average Wyoming kid might have. I get to introduce the world to students who may not have had the chance to travel before, may not have had the chance to get out of their comfort zone very much. And so I, in a gentle and safe environment, I encourage students to get out of their comfort zone for the sake of their own growth. I draw a lot of my own strength from the strength and tenacity and inspiration that I see in my students. And why do you feel like it's so important for all of us, your students included, to be thinking more outside of our little bubble or outside of our comfort zone? Well, as I tell my students, we live in a world now, like it or not, where even if we are staying in one place, the world is moving around us and it's moving very quickly. So our lives are influenced by the broader world around us. Increasingly, we're coming into contact with people with other belief systems, with other worldviews, other life experiences. And that can be a scary experience or it can be a really enriching and exciting experience. If our students are going to be competitive in a work world that is moving very quickly and that involves intersections with people from other parts of the country and other parts of the world, our students need to have those skills to be able to communicate across cultures and appreciate people's differences as well as their similarities. You know, you get this, your dream job essentially back in Powell, which is so close to the Heart Mountain confinement site where your family was incarcerated. Can you elaborate on your family history in relation to Heart Mountain? On my grandmother's side of the family, her father worked for the railroad for 30 years and after 30 years he retired and he moved the family to hollywood california to start a new life there he had asthma i believe and so um, it was better for his breathing there and they they moved to california to start a new life he ran a grocery store that he actually named the wyoming market because he loved wyoming so much and that's where his family started their lives here in the United States. He had just started to gain some security and get the business running at the Wyoming market when the bombs dropped at Pearl Harbor and another kind of bomb dropped on the Japanese-American population of the West Coast. The FBI came and ransacked the store, investigated my great-grandfather, found nothing of interest, but then... President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, February 19th, 1942. Soon after that, there were exclusion orders that went out to all persons of Japanese ancestry who were living within these exclusion zones on the West Coast. And so my relatives had to leave their store and they were sent to a temporary assembly center, they called them where they lived in horse stalls for a few months, and then ultimately they were shipped back to Wyoming. So I'm sure they were the only people who felt a little bit of comfort at least to know that they were coming back to the place that they loved so much. So that's how my uh, relatives ended up at Heart Mountain. On the other side of the family, my grandfather, he was still living in Wyoming. He was born here and his family was still here when Pearl Harbor was bombed. So they were not subject to that executive order. They got to stay here. But he was working for the Union Pacific Railroad at the time, and the railroad as a private industry 
made the decision to fire all of its Japanese American employees on the basis of their race. And so my grandfather, who was living in Green River at the time, lost his job along with all of the other Japanese American workers. And for them, although they didn't have to go to a camp, it meant significant hardship because most of the railroaders lived in railroad housing. So when they lost their jobs, they also lost their homes. And this was in February in Southern Wyoming. Uh, my grandfather, because his family had other businesses, the, the laundry business in the area, they had a place to stay, but his family hosted another Japanese American family who got kicked out of their homes when they lost their jobs on the railroad. So ultimately, almost 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, so these were the immigrant parents and their American-born children, were placed into 10 different camps around the interior of the United States. One of those camps was at Heart Mountain, Wyoming, which is located halfway between Cody and Powell. And my relatives were on the first train to arrive at Heart Mountain, and they were on the last train to leave. So they were here for the entirety of the three or so years that the camp was open. When your family left, how did they pick up the pieces? I think that the story of picking up the pieces after the war is often lost. And my family, they ended up okay, as far as I know. They lost everything from the store. They had nothing but a, a check for $25 and a bus ticket, but they had lost everything they worked toward up until that point. But they apparently were able to make a life for themselves and, and do all right. But many people did not fare as well, even though it was three years of wartime imprisonment, it destroyed future possibilities. It it was such a disruption for their lives that a lot of families were never able to recover. And also, it this experience ripped families apart, both physically and also in, in terms of their closeness as a family. And we talk a lot about generational trauma. In some cases, families were literally separated because um, some members of the family went to one camp and others went to another camp. But the fact of children seeing their parents so helpless and incarcerated, we're seeing now has had an incredibly traumatic effect on the children who now are dealing with this as, as adults. And they're recognizing, you know, some of the symptoms of trauma that they have lived with because of uh, being incarcerated as children and seeing their parents go through that. And so a lot of the 10 campsites now are having these annual pilgrimages where we invite people who were incarcerated here and their descendants to come back to this site that was a site of trauma for so many people, but to come back here for healing so that they can start to pick up the pieces that maybe were never able to be made whole again after this experience. So now more and more people, and including the younger generations, my generation and my mom's generation and even younger now, we are reconnecting with that past and hopefully committing to continuing healing within our own community, but also reaching out to other groups who could benefit from the authenticity of our voice. 
So how does your work as an anthropologist connect back to your Japanese American heritage and your family history of being incarcerated at Heart Mountain during World War II? I think of anthropology in the most basic sense to be about compassion and empathy. As anthropologists, we try to understand what it might be like to live in someone else's shoes, to understand what their experiences are like through their eyes. And we can never truly understand what somebody else's life experiences are, but we can try and we can hear their stories and try to imagine ourselves in their position. And the more that we make an effort to listen to those stories and give credence to those stories, particularly if those experiences are really different from our own, and particularly if a belief system is really different from our own. If we make an effort to to hear people out and learn about their realities, if we make an effort to empathize with their situations, it is harder to fear and hate them, and it's easier to feel compassion toward them. And that's what anthropology is about for me. And although we might not necessarily need more anthropologists, professional anthropologists in the world, we definitely need people with that skill set. So that's what I am able to teach in my classes, but it's also a big part of what connects my academic work to my family heritage and the Japanese American incarceration experience because I feel like it's my responsibility to share this history, not necessarily for the sake of remembrance and honoring the past, but more for, I feel a responsibility to be a voice for groups that might not have a strong voice now. So I try and speak to as many audiences as I can whenever I'm invited. I also have increasingly been speaking to groups of judges from all over the country, various different courts, as I become more involved with anthropology of law. I've been speaking to a lot of communities around Wyoming, and also I've spoken to a lot of groups around the country as I get more involved with the legal history of of Heart Mountain and the Japanese American incarceration. What do you hope to say in this position as being able to share and be a voice for this time and this chapter in history? A message, I think, to any of my audiences, whether they are community members in Riverton, Wyoming, or students in Powell, or state Supreme Court judges in South Carolina, I think I want them to remain cautious about how what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II could very well happen again if we're not careful about protecting our democracy all the time. I try to contextualize the the history of, of how Japanese Americans were perceived at the time and how that allowed them to so easily be rounded up and placed into camps based on really, as it turns out, nothing but their race. By contextualizing that, I try to instill the message that we always have to be careful about this. Whatever ethnic group might be targeted at a particular time may be vulnerable, again, if we're not careful about learning from lessons of the past. You seem to have a knowing from when you were young that you wanted to establish and come back to Wyoming, but did you ever think that you would end up, you know, teaching anthropology at 
at a community college in Wyoming next door to your where your family had such deep roots being incarcerated at Heart Mountain. And no, just having... I couldn't have foreseen it being that perfect. <laughs> it was it really feels like destiny for me to be back here. And it feels good. I feel like I'm living the life that I'm supposed to right now and I don't take that for granted at all. I feel very thankful to be able to work with my amazing students and have great colleagues here and be able to be so involved with the museum both locally and nationally. And did you ever think also, you know, you're you're taking this path in anthropology and but did you ever think that you would come back to your family heritage in particular and coming back to your grandparents' experience and great-grandparents' experience and having that be such a direct correlation to the work that you're doing? No, I never foresaw that. I was always personally interested in my family's heritage, but I never had a chance to become professionally involved in it until moving back to Cody six years ago. And now it is one of the most fulfilling things in my life. And it drives me to keep working hard. It's empowering to have people recognize the value of what we have to share here. Well, this chapter is power, chapter three. What does power mean to you? I think that so much of what I do comes from a sense of place, a sense of authenticity, And power for me is about kindness and generosity and compassion and empathy. If if you are relentlessly kind and relentlessly generous, it disarms people in a way. And that brings a sense of power, but not in a coercive way way at all. It's in a in a sharing kind of way. And as someone who is so deeply connected to this state, and I love Wyoming so much, I feel a great sense of pride for what we're doing at Heart Mountain. I don't feel much resentment or pain coming from this site because we're working on it, because we have this beautiful museum there that we are inviting people from all over the world to come and visit because the foundation is sending such a strong message. I'm proud to be involved in it. And my hope is that all Wyomingites would embrace this as part of our state's history. We need to embrace the, the bad along with the good because it's part of what makes us who we are. I don't see Heart Mountain as something that belongs to Japanese American history. It is American history and it's Wyoming history. So as I go around the state talking with different communities about this, I hope to instill some of that passion and hope really that I feel about this history. And I would like to continue to have a voice at the national level and to be heard because I think we have an important story that needs to be told and I like telling it.
That was Ara Newland. To see Ara's full profile and portraits, visit womeninwyoming.com. That's womeninwyoming.com. You can also follow my journey on Instagram at womeninwyo. That's women in W-Y-O or on Facebook at Women in Wyoming. Traditional shakuhachi music performed by Michael Chikuzen-Gould, a grandmaster shakuhachi player, which is the Japanese bamboo flute. I also highly recommend a visit to the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center, the museum at Heart Mountain, dedicated to preserving the history of what happened there. They've done an incredible job. Visit heartmountain.org, that's heartmountain.org, to learn more. The Women in Wyoming Multimedia Exhibit will debut in partnership with the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming, October 25th, 2019 through August 2nd, 2020. The exhibit will feature large-scale portraits and audio soundscape and interactive components celebrating the achievements, power, and learned wisdom of Wyoming women today. Visit womeninwyoming.com to learn how you can help bring the exhibit to life and sponsor Women in Wyoming at the Center of the West. Chapter 3 is supported in part by the Wyoming Community Foundation, the Equipoise Fund, and Center of Wonder. Momentum is our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming. Mm-hmm.